everyone, welcome to Brains, Black Holes, and Beyond, a collaboration podcast between Princeton Insights Newsletter and the Daily Princetonian. From the Prince, my name is Senna Aldabash. Today's guest on the show is Dr. Ruth Fong, a lecturer in the Computer Science Department. Dr. Fong got her bachelor's in computer science at Harvard University before getting her master's and PhD in engineering science from Oxford University. At Princeton, she now conducts research in computer vision, machine learning, deep learning, and explainable AI in her own lab, the Looking Glass Lab, as well as collaborating with the Visual AI Lab. She also teaches intro and AIML computer science courses. Dr. Fong, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. My first question for you is, what initially got you interested in computer science, more specifically computer vision interpretability? Yeah, so I'm, I'll answer this in two parts. Uh, for what got me interested in computer vision, my parents are both biologists by training, and I always love science and STEM. Um, so I actually thought I was going to be a biologist uh, f- up until maybe midway through college. Um, but in high school, I was fortunate to have a fantastic computer science teacher, uh, Mrs. Wendy Gall. And I think the thing that really drew me to computer science was this ability to create. Um, In biology and a lot of the science, you have to run experiments. These take long times. Sometimes things like, you know, flies dying or, you know, something being the wrong temperature can throw off an experiment and you have to repeat. Uh, Whereas what I liked about computer science is, you know, if the failures are there, they're probably because of your code, um, but you can fix them and then there aren't any other variables that can contribute to problems. So um, I think that ability to kind of build something quickly and prototype and as some of you guys may have done like Coast 126 final projects, um, that type of creativity that you get very quickly in computer science compared to other STEM fields is what really ultimately drew me to computer science over other uh, types of sciences I was considering. Um, in college, kind of once I decided uh, that, you know, on computer science, and I guess another fun fact I like to share is um, I, I loved biology, but I actually realized I was really rubbish at it because I was bad at memorizing things. Um, but I didn't learn this until maybe I still have a master's degree in something related to bioscience. So it's okay for you to do things that you love but aren't good at. Um, but in terms of what drew me to computer vision and machine learning and interpretability, um, I think similarly, and I was just t- meeting with a female student and sharing about this, um, Oftentimes you wanna find something that you're passionate about and where you have unique skill sets in and where you know you think there are interesting problems in the world and that uh, is the sweet spot. Um, in college, I actually took a lot of classes in kind of the more mathy side of computer science, what's known as theory. And again, I was really solidly mediocre. I love these classes, um, but it was very clear to me like it would be a bad idea to try to make a career out of this. Um, so I kind of, did a um, optimization where I first tried the software engineering route in my summers. Um, and then I kind of compared it to really my senior thesis experiment uh, experience. I was uh, in a really unique lab that was half neuroscience and half computer science. And it was studying vision from uh, kind of mammals as small as rats to monkeys, all the way up to kind of artificial vision in what are known as deep neural networks, kind of the way these deep neural networks uh, understand and interpret images and videos. And it was really kind of that experience that made me realize, oh, I really like this. I'm arguably way better at this than kind of the math side of CS that I've spent most of my time in college on. And I think for me, it was really important to work on something that I could explain to my friends, most of whom weren't STEM majors. um, And kind of what computer vision is all about is trying to understand the visual world. So typically this means 
uh, training um, or kind of running algorithms on images and videos. And it's very easy to explain, oh, like I'm trying to make AI models do better when they're uh, using image uh, images as inputs uh, compared to maybe some other branches of computer science. It was just a lot harder to kind of explain um, and I think kind of that desire to want to explain my work also directly influenced my specific choice of subfield in explainable AI, where they were really interested in um, explaining kind of the state of the art uh, AI models, which now are made up of millions, billions, and even trillions of parameters. And trying to explain to humans uh, who are going to be using these models and are affected by these models, why did these models make these predictions? And kind of the main premise is as AI is increasingly being applied to high impact, but also high risk scenarios like precision medicine, self-driving cars, you know, we can't just trust that, you know, someone gives us these models and say they're good enough. We want to be able to audit them. We want to be able to understand them. And that's really what motivated and still motivates me today uh, into why I'm interested in computer vision and explainable AI. When I was looking at some of your research that you did for this episode, I saw your paper that used fossil segmentation as a case study for improving segmentation using interpretable modifications. And I found it really cool. And I was wondering if you could talk more about that paper and where that idea came from, you know, what you found out. And then also if there's any other paper you'd love to talk about, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, so I'm glad you picked that paper. Um, that is a paper that started off as a junior paper um, by... Uh, Indu Panagrani. Uh, she's a Coast BSc major. Uh, she's continuing on in a senior thesis topic very similar to this. Um, and really, she brought the idea to me. She had done her fall JP uh, with um, kind of a similar problem uh, in collaboration with a uh, professor, Adam Moloff, in the geosciences department. Um, and kind of came to me saying, you know, I see that you've done interesting work in computer vision. Um, I want to do this collaboration with geosciences where it's very hard to collect data. Um, uh, and that's one of the main challenges in machine learning. You need large scale data sets to train these complex models. So she's like, you know, most of machine learning is focused on large scale data sets. Here's a domain where it's very hard to collect data. It takes maybe several hours to annotate one image and we're trying to segment coral reef fossils. Yeah, I should have said at the beginning, the project is um, we're trying to segment coral reef fossils um, because the better we can understand the structure of ancient coral reef fossils, the better we can understand climate um, in those previous eras. And that can help us understand, you know, how does uh, coral, reef coral reef structures impact biodiversity and kind of contribute to this larger conversation of what are the different factors for climate change and things like that. Um, so I had no background in um, geosciences or climate change. Um, and she kind of said, you know, here's the problem, like you can provide some of the advising on the computer science and computer vision side. Uh, and it's been really neat to kind of see how this project in collaboration with geosciences and Professor Moloff's lab has developed. And I would say a large part of why um, this project has been so interesting and successful is really um, because Indu kind of came with this idea, brought the two of us together and we never would have met otherwise probably. Um, and yeah, has been doing amazing job in, you know, her new senior thesis project is a slight pivot off of the JP, um, but it focuses on this problem of how do we do better with uh, segmenting coral reef fossils. Gotcha. And I was kind of curious to know, like, um, I know right now you're focusing, focusing on like things like computer vision, but I'm curious to know, like, how do you see your research evolving? Is there any project that you're working on that you're really excited um, will come out or you're really excited about the results and things like that? Yeah, so there's there's a number of projects. It's it's hard to pick uh, one. Uh, there's I think since coming into Princeton, 
uh, as you mentioned earlier, I've been collaborating with um, Professor Olga Rusakovsky's lab, um, and that's been a really uh, amazing collaboration. I kind of am bringing my expertise in explainable AI, and she's done some amazing work in machine learning fairness. Um, so one of the first machine learning fairness papers I've gotten a chance to work with her on uh, was co-led by uh, Nicole Meister and Dora Zhao. Uh, they're both former Princeton undergrads. This was Nicole's senior thesis um, project while Dora was a master's student here. Um, and their project was on understanding kind of gender artifacts in computer vision data sets. Um, the kind of one of the big problems in machine learning fairness is they're trained on these large scale data sets and then deployed in the real world. Um, but often the performance in the real world, uh, one doesn't match maybe uh, the model initial performance on the data set it was trained on. Uh, but too often we see disparate performance for different kinds of populations that may have been underrepresented in uh, the data distribution. So you may have seen, um, you know, in the news or the New York Times, uh, kind of a pattern of AI being released, and then some articles come out saying like it doesn't work well on some subsets of the population. For instance, some face recognition did really poorly on women of color, and then you know companies retract. And that pattern of let's release without thinking about the implications, realize it's bad, retract. Um, so ML fairness is really focused on kind of that problem space. Nicole and Doris project, you know, was trying to understand. We know that there are kind of differences in our image data sets, um, in the images where uh, women appear uh, to present uh, more feminine and in images where uh, people tend to present more male. And the reason I'm using presentation is uh, the way we kind of label or get uh, kind of gender annotations for this project isn't by asking people, you know, what's their gender identity. It's kind of perceived gender expression. So it's not the same as gender identity, and we want to be very clear about that. Um, but we know kind of perceived gender expression is going to look different in these visual data sets. But no one had really explored how exactly do they present differently in these large-scale data sets that most computer vision models are trained on. Um, so Nicole and Dora kind of did a number of different experiments. Um, I think the most kind of surprising one was they took images from these popular data sets, uh, reduced it down to its mean pixel value, the mean color, so mean RGB value, um, and then trained a model and asked, can it predict these perceived gender uh, expression labels? And still with just the mean color, you're able to, to predict uh, gender. Um, and they did all sorts of other experiments along these lines. And every time we thought, okay, this is going to be too hard for the model. I think it was only until we made the model, uh, made the images black and white, and then reduced it down to very small images that now the model uh, couldn't predict gender at all or above random chance. Um, and some of the more interesting findings we found was that um, images that uh, contained women tended to have women uh, more in the center and larger in the images and in less quote unquote active poses. Whereas the images containing men uh, tended to be smaller, not as center uh, focused um, and uh, in more active poses. And when we kind of dug through these image data sets, we realized that a lot of these sports images uh, contained uh, people uh, that were presenting as men. Um, so this just kind of is kind of one small um, you know, interesting quirk, but we found kind of many different patterns like this, and no one has ever really stud studied this in as depth as Nicole and Dora did. Um, and kind of one of the big implications for the ML fairness world is 
um, just like in maybe analogous conversation in politics, there's this kind of idea of maybe if we're just colorblind or gender blind in our approaches in hiring, et cetera, um, that will solve the problem. Uh, but what we found in uh, Nicole and Dora's work is that these gender artifacts are everywhere. They, they may have nothing. Sometimes they are, you know, substan substantive and, uh, you know, meaningfully correlated with, you know, certain kinds of gender expressions. But other times it was, you know, women can play sports, too. Like there's no reason why, you know, active position, you know, should encode and lean more uh, male presenting. Um, so what we found is basically these gender artifacts are everywhere in visual data, even in the mean pixel color of an image. Um, but a lot of the kind of techniques for trying to make models less biased is to take a quote unquote um, bias blind approach. Let's try to erase or forget gender in our models. Let's try to erase all notions of or erase the ability to predict gender in our models. And then we should have a, a fair model, right? Um, but what the work showed is if these cues and artifacts are everywhere, there's no way you can, one, completely remove uh, all of the artifacts for gender. Um, and two, even if you were able to successfully do this, this would probably severely hamper your model. So kind of the big uh, main takeaway for the larger community is we need to move away from these bias blind approaches to these more context aware approaches. You know, we need to be as aware as possible and encode that technically in our models that there are these statistical differences uh, in these different demographics that we care about in terms of fairness and bias. And let's try to make sure that we ensure, you know, fair performance as much as possible with these different demographic groups without trying to, you know, destroy our model to the point where it can no longer detect gender artifacts or kind of predict gender, quote unquote. So um, that's one work that, you know, also highlights you can do really neat things um, in your senior thesis in JPs, um, but I think has pretty big implications for, um, you know, the broader machine learning fairness and broader AI ML community. That's really cool. On this podcast, we've talked a little bit about AI ethics and like how they can be discriminatory. So it's really interesting to kind of look at it from the perspective of like, you know, rather than having AI not be able to detect these differences, it's important for AI to detect these differences, but also make sure that each group is treated fairly. Before I get on to my last question, I was wondering if there was anything else that you wanted to include in the podcast that I hadn't asked you yet, or maybe that we didn't get to touch on as much. Yeah, so I think we focus primarily on research. Um, but I think a lot of my job also includes teaching. Right now I'm teaching COAST 324, the Intro to Machine Learning class. Um, and I think that the piece of advice I keep giving Princeton undergrads over and over again is, you know, it's okay not to be perfect. Um, and it's also okay to take breaks. I had a lovely conversation with a student who, you know, took a gap year and, you know, came back much better for it. And I think I was also sharing in another kind of women in CS discussion that um, in my own kind of academic career, I, you know, went straight through college and grad school and then burned out by the end of my PhD. So I took a gap year. Um, right after my PhD before coming to Princeton and taught middle school and high school computer science for a year. And it was really what I needed to kind of, you know, get back on my feet and just, I wish I had told my younger self, like, it's not a race. You don't have to, you know, be the first one to finish your PhD or, you know, graduate with a 4.0, um, that you want to look at your life, including your academics and your career holistically. And, you know, the best way to do great work in your career and professionally is if you're taking care of yourself first. And I know from experience that that is still a lesson I'm still actively 
trying to learn and teach myself. As many listeners may know, um, fields like computer science and engineering are very male-dominated fields. So for any listeners who are women in STEM trying to navigate those obstacles, how, what, what advice do you have? Like, I know you're a super successful researcher and professor, and so like, it'd be really great to get your insight. Yeah, so I think the traditional answer to this is like find mentors. Um, I think my spin on this is find your village. Um, in college, uh, when I was a freshman, our first year student, um, a group of women founded the Women in CS group at Harvard. And that group is still going strong. I had a friend who went back as a keynote speaker there. Um, and the women that I graduated with, we still keep in touch. We're still encouraging each other, celebrating both professional and personal highs and lows. Uh, it's been a great group, not only in college, but I've, I've been really surprised how much this group um, has continued to support one another even uh, after college. Um, and I think kind of throughout my academic journey and career, I think uh, really you want to find your village. It doesn't have to be other women. Some of my best uh, collaborators or PSET buddies and partners were men and they were great. Um, you know, sometimes they made comments, but they were teachable. And, you know, I was like, hey, like, I don't think that was like a really fair comment you made about someone. And they're like, you are right. I'm sorry. Um, so, you know, your village can look like a lot of different things. Often it will look like women or people like you, but it doesn't have to just look like that. Um, and even here, like I think I have a number of people in the department who I know like have my back, not just professionally, uh, but personally. I think uh, Professor Olga Rusakovsky and I have been on a few like panels and talks together and we'll also, we'll always be like, oh yeah, we love, you know, working together. And, you know, that's been a, a research collaboration that has flourished into much more. And to remember that, you know, our professional lives are a really big part of our identity. It's, you know, one of the main parts of my identity. Um, but, you know, I'm not just doing this alone. There's a lot of people who, you know, want me to do well and succeed and want to support me holistically. And I think finding those people and, you know, realizing that I think particularly in academic, academia, it can feel lonely sometimes. Uh, but realizing that it doesn't have to be that way and trying to kind of create structures and supports that work for you to support you along the journey is really important. I love that advice. I think that's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Fong. This was great talking to you and learning about your research and getting a lot of really cool insight. Thank great. You. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Thank you.